The Bad Widow, How to Live After Loss with Allison Penna. I'm the producer and co-host at Alternative Health Tools, where together we discover and share new alternative health tools and resources from alternative healthcare practitioners and experts. Hi, this is Kim Shea, and welcome to Alternative Health Tools. I'm your host on this side of the pond here in Southern California. It's Tuesday, June 22nd, 2021, and we are coming out of the pandemic. I know I've mentioned several podcasts that we were in the pandemic, and I'm bringing it up because we will be addressing some of that today with our host. I'm really honored today to be able to speak with Allison Penna, and she labels herself the bad widow, and we're going to find out why. But her mission in life is taking your life back after loss. And she's covering the pandemic, business loss, job loss, divorce, death of a pet or a partner or a friend or a relative, pretty much anybody there, damage, poor relationships, um, grieving illness or aging. And I don't think we've left anybody out in that whole process. Almost everybody's going through something right now. And she helps people move through that. So welcome, Allison Penna, to Alternative Health Tools. Thanks so much, Kim. Would you tell me about yourself and, and your story? Sure. Um, so I'll tell you about the portion that's about bad widow. My husband uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, stage four in October 2015. And we basically fought for every day of his life after that until he died at home in my arms in September of 2016. So he lived 11 months and- Wow. Yeah. The trajectory for pancreatic cancer, it's one of the real nasty ones is um, six weeks to four months. So we got more time than we expected, but it was borrowed time. You know, and so we use that to really learn how to live fearlessly. Because when you're watching someone you love, we were together for 25 years, so close to half my life. Um, mm-hmm. When you're watching someone you love just getting thinner and thinner and fighting, but you're not sure you're going to win and the odds are against you it really wakes you up to what's important. I, I created kind of an environment where he could paint and play tennis. He finished his last commission the Thursday before the Saturday he died. Wow. And for me, it was also, what do I want to do? Who am I if I'm not just a caregiver and I'm not just a widow? And so I had wanted to speak on stage about the work that I do for 10 years and sing in cabaret shows, 10 years. Mm. But I thought I might be embarrassed and I might not look good. And then in the face of what was going on with Dave, my husband, all that faded away and got less important. And in the course of those 11 months, I spoke on three stages and sang on four. Wow. Yeah. That's very impressive. Good for you. Yeah. And then then he died and I was a widow. And it was 
my whole life, you know, in 25 years, you're kind of wound around each other like vines. And you don't think about how important it is to have someone who sort of has your back, you know, to celebrate with you when things are great and to Mm. comfort you when things are not great. And that was gone. Um, the future we planned together was gone. And, and I define loss as the death, the death of a future imagined or co-created, which will never come to pass. And in all of the things that we grieve, that's true. So there's something that we've, we've built, that we've dreamed of, that we've longed for, that's now not going to happen. Into this, I had a lot of trouble making decisions without someone at my back. I had a lot of trouble taking action. I didn't feel as capable as I was before. I had the attention span of a fruit fly. Mm. Memory gaps you could drive a truck through and flagging energy. So I couldn't easily work. The work that I did either required connecting with people, no energy for that. The other things I had done was editing and proofreading, 25 years. But you need memory and focus for those things. So all these various activities and capabilities that I had no longer existed. My husband left a thousand paintings. He was a professional artist. And so it was a it was not a matter of collecting his files up from the office and putting them in a filing cabinet at home. It was close up a studio where he worked for over 30 years and bring a thousand paintings home from a 500 square foot studio to an 800 square foot apartment. Oh my. Oh yeah. So if you think about after a loss, the the emotional pull of the things. And then I brought home a thousand of works that he had created. So that I was looking at it all the time. Bad Widow came about because everybody says, well, why Bad Widow? I'm sure. Yeah, that was my question. Yes. I'm sure, but you're a nice widow. You know, the people who, who know me, they say, you're, you're a nice widow. You're a good widow. And the reason bad widow was that into this really indecisive person that I became right after my husband died, people brought all their good ideas and their advice. Mm. The problem was that it was usually wrong. And what I discovered is that because people are so uncomfortable with mortality, even though we will all die, guarantee. Yep. You know, nobody gets out alive. And no, they don't. Yeah. And yet people who didn't. So what happened is people who were frightened of their own mortality, they stayed away from me. And what I began to realize is that those people who wanted to support me 
and who were saying and doing things, they really meant well. They were doing the best they could. And they were giving me what they thought they would want in my situation. The problem was that they were usually wrong. And so what would happen then in the first year, what would happen then was I would burst into tears and they would go away or they would say, I didn't mean to make you cry. And I would think I've got bigger problems than you. (laughs) It was not you that made me cry. (laughs) Yeah. Might've been some other stuff going on. Might've been some other stuff going on. And in, in the face of realizing that basically people meant well, but they kept getting it wrong. What I realized was that I could be someone who could tell them how to get it right because they wanted to support me and they wanted to give me what I needed, but I couldn't articulate what I needed. And so they couldn't deliver it. And so into that void, they gave me their advice. You must do this. You must do that. One of the things I hear a lot from widows is, People are always telling me what to do because a person who's just lost someone is not making decisions very easily or well. Mm -hmm. So as bad widow, what I decided to do was set the record straight because I knew what my own experience was and I could actually communicate that in a way that would be really helpful. And so rather than just saying, oh, okay, thank you very much. When someone would say something like, how are you? And I would be thinking, how the heck do you think I am? I just (laughs) lost the man I loved for 25 years. I'm trying to handle the rents on an apartment and a studio in Manhattan. What do you think? What a stupid question was my internal dialogue. And so rather than saying, fine, what I began to do is say something like, I can't actually answer that. But if you asked me a question like, how are you right now? Or how are you today with a shorter time frame? I can do that. And people were really appreciative of knowing what to do because they had no idea. Mm. And in order to come through my own grief, so the first year was this wasteland of grief a lot of tears, barely being able to get out of bed. And the memory loss was a real problem. I remember walking to an appointment and getting a block and a half in my slippers. And the only reason I noticed is my heels got cold. Mm. And I thought my heels are cold. Why are my heels cold? And I looked down and I had slippers on. And so I kept tripping over these various breakdowns. And every time I would hit a breakdown, I would solve for it. So after that one, I wound up with a little sign by my door. And it said wallet, keys, shoes, coat, all the things that I was forgetting, that you don't usually forget. I had one day when I just couldn't go home. I was a wash in grief. So I went to dinner, I went to a movie and I then eventually I went home. And the next day I made a short list of five people and I called these people up and I said, look, I just need a place where I could go 
at any hour of the day or night. Sit me on a couch, go about your lives, but someplace where I could land and be safe. And five people said that I could come to their house at two o'clock in the morning if I needed to. Those are true friends right there. True friends. And I used it once, but having that net was really important to my sense of safety. The first thing that happened was first I, I contracted and I saw less people, I did less activities. And so the first thing I needed to do, which we're seeing in this pandemic, people contracted with social distancing, with not being able to go out, with being afraid of other people. Mm -hmm. This has never happened. I needed to re-engage in the world, to actually deliberately push out my boundaries. And I think this is one of the challenges that we face right now, because getting back out into the world is an external experience. It's also an internal one. And if you don't address the internal piece as well, it's not going to go well. Mm. And what I did was I developed some strategies for literally re-engaging in the world. I looked across sort of the five areas of what I call affluence in my life, which are time, money, health, relationships, and work for business. And I tried to figure out what I could push out on with the least charge. Now, I couldn't be a proofreader, I couldn't be an editor, and I couldn't be a consultant. All the things I was trained for. But I had a friend who was a widow, and she had a Halloween pop-up shop. And she agreed that I could work four-hour shifts. I had no energy for eight. Hmm. No, nobody else would have let me do it. And I knew that I could hang a costume on a hanger. I could do that. And, I, and the point was not what I was doing because I couldn't go back to what I was doing, but I needed to expand my horizons and I needed to increase my capacity to both do activities and to be with people. Because both of those had contracted really significantly after my husband died. I just didn't have much juice. So re-engage was the first piece. And I began just doing that in all areas. And these are kind of the, I have three pillars that I went through to come through. Okay. And then the second thing was that I hear a lot, I wish I had my life back. But after any loss, you can't have that life back. It's a, a really rough truth. And it also provides freedom. So if you can really get that there is the life before and the life after, and it's not a new normal, it's actually a new life. Because the person that you are after the loss is not the same person. One of the fairly amazing things that happens when we grieve a loss is that it rises up what really matters to us. Mm. 
Because if you know to your bones that life is short, then what would you be doing with your one short life? That's a great perspective. Yeah. Very valuable. And so the second piece that I went through was reinvent because when you're with someone for 25 years, especially at the beginning of a relationship, you compromise a lot. Well, they don't love doing this, so I'm just going to do that less. Mm -hmm. And they like doing this, so I'm going to go along. And I had to sort of unravel that for myself and test things out, figure out what was his and what was mine and what was ours and what did I still want to keep and what was I going to let go of. So, for example, I love to do open mic in clubs. I did it a lot before I was married. My husband didn't love it. And slowly it dwindled down. And now I've taken it back. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I do open mics regularly, open mic poetry and open mic singing. Oh, that's awesome. Because one of the one of the things that was so important was to take really good care of myself and and incorporate self-expression just to remember that i was i'm a lot of things i'm an entrepreneur i'm a daughter my husband left me his mother oh so i interesting. am oh yeah <sighs> i'm i'm primary caregiver for my mother-in-law cuz he was an only son There's no other family here. And she's now 98. Mm. And it was complicated. You know, we had a really contentious mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship. Before he passed? Before he passed? Okay. Very tough. Mm. Very, very tough. Really battling with each other. And in the last almost five years, we've come to love each other, but it's been a journey. Mm. It's been a real journey. Uh, My hat's off to you because, I mean, you did, you went through this, you know, really draining caregiving situation, and then you moved right into another one with really no break for yourself and that you were able to reconcile what was a bad and volatile relationship, I guess, and then bring it to something that was healed. That's really amazing. That's really admirable. It took a little while for us to come back to each other because she was really mad at me. She thought that, that he died. Oh, okay. She, um, you know, there's always this second guessing if only we had done. Yeah. And so she thought, well, if we only we had done this or that, he would have lived. I see. Oh, that's right. And, you know, that just wasn't the truth. So it was actually about a year before we came back to reconnecting um, and, and really building this pretty amazing thing that we've, you know, relationship that we've created at this point. Beautiful. It's a beautiful she didn't abandon you either because... At that point, she could have said, look, I don't have my son anymore. There's nothing to tie us together. I'm going to go find other people. But she leaned on you. I think that's that's really says a lot about you. 
Yeah, just planned her, May 5th was her 98th birthday. Jeez, that's great. Yeah, so I had a cake and her friends. We could only have 10 people, but, you know. That's so admirable, really. And then the the third piece, so it's re-engage, re-invent, and then the third piece is rebuild because one of the things that happens is that people step up, they step back, and they step out of your lives. And one of the things I hear most often from people after they experience a loss is, I thought my friends and family were going to be there for me and they're gone. Mm. There's a strange thing that happens about time with loss. You get X amount of time to grieve. The only problem is that it takes longer than that. Yeah. So the first year was wasteland of grief. The second year was zero to rage in five seconds. Hmm. And none of it's under was under my control. And none of this is comfortable for anyone else to be around. You know. Yeah. So if you if you flare at work, there are consequences. If you flare up in your relationships, people leave. You know, and so these are real experiences that happen. So in the in the space of our support networks, people go away and they need to be rebuilt. But one of the things I started looking at is we think about networks as just for business. I needed everything. I needed someone to go do exercise with. I needed someone to go out with. I needed someone to just come and be in my home. I had friends over. I couldn't get rid of the things that smelled like him. So I had friends come over and I retreated to the far end of the apartment and they took everything that smelled like him Mm. and threw it out for me. Wow. So there were so many things that I needed that I began to realize that networks hold us up in all areas of our lives. But we don't think about it that way. Yeah. And then I realized that, okay, well, what if I could look at my networks and figure out where the holes were and deliberately fill them? Hmm. That's a different tact. Yeah. Yeah, because what we do is we wait for somebody to rise into that spot, but maybe they're the wrong person. So what if you chose the people who rise up? Then you wind up with this amazing network that really supports you in the way you need to be supported. How did you do that? Did you tell people, I need you specifically to fill this role? Or did you just do that mentally for you? Well, one, this this kind of came into like reinvent and, and really clarifying what I wanted in order to ask for what I needed clearly. Oh, this was a magical thing that I discovered. As a widow, what I found was that people wanted to give me everything I wanted, but they didn't know what I wanted. And so they were not going to act unless they couldn't screw it up. Hmm. So if I could get super clear myself and ask so clearly that they could be my hero, 
they would do it about 80% of the time. Mm. Once I got really clear about what I needed and who I needed and what, um, what did I want in my life and what people would be great to have that happen. What typically would happen once I was aware was that those people would start showing up. It's like, don't think of a red car. And then there's Mm -hmm. red cars everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, don't think of someone to do Pilates with. And then suddenly all these people who want to do Pilates would show up in this very strange way. And then from among those, if you knew that's what you wanted, then you could, could cherry pick and go, yeah, I really want someone to, and the making distinctions and being really clear, those were really critical to moving into the life that I wanted. It's interesting because I find that people want to help. They want to help so badly. And what they really want to do is help you stop your pain. And they're, they're coming from a good place, but they don't know what to do. So if you tell them, yep. like you said, they, they'll trip over themselves to do it. They want to be the one who comes in there, like you said, as a hero and, and do that thing for you. Not everybody, but a lot of people, they really do want to help. I think that's so that's so nice that you were able to do that for people. I mean, that was a gift that you gave to other people. I think that was really lovely. Yeah, it was it was sort of amazing because I had always been really reluctant to ask for what I needed because I didn't want to be obligated. And mm-hmm. I think this is how people feel about asking for stuff. Well, but what will they expect in return? What will I owe them? And what I what I realized was that as long as I was clear and appreciative, that was enough. Mm. That was plenty. It was actually a balanced exchange. And I didn't have a choice to not ask because I needed so much. I mean, I was, I was desperate for help in so many ways that it wasn't an option not to ask. That was yeah. a lot of growth for you then too, to push it yourself. Was. Yeah. I think you talked about that with, um, client where they were trying to figure out how to ask for help. I thought I had a note on that. I apologize, but talked about asking for help, but in a way that doesn't push other people away and yeah, asking for support without pushing people away. You uh, That was on your website. So that's kind of what you had to figure out for yourself. It sounds like. Yeah, it was. It was because I got irritated when people got it wrong. And then I realized that it wasn't just their responsibility. And I had one really magical thing happen. My family helped me with rent for a period of time because I was really incapacitated. And it came to March. It was March 23rd. And my landlord called up and said, where's the rent? And I said, oh, you know, it's taken care of for a while. And she said, no, that ended in February. And it, so it was March 23rd. I had no idea where the rent was coming from. I was still in quite bad shape. And I wrote a blog post, which is still on my website, called uh, Grief, Brain, and Bills. Mm. And I wrote this blog post. And then someone who followed me, who was my college freshman roommate, messaged me on Facebook and said, I'll pay your rent for March. 
How nice. And I had not seen her maybe for 15 years. Oh, boy. You know, I mean, we had Facebook, social media contact, but not actually talked in years and years and years. Um, And so I messaged her back and I said, you do realize I live in Manhattan and this (laughs) is the amount of the rent and feel free to back out. And she said, no, give me your landlord's name and address and she'll have it tomorrow. Gosh, that's, that's lovely. How generous. And she did. And I thanked her a million times and it still actually brings me to tears because it was such a magical, just, I asked and was answered and I said, oh, that was incredible. And she said, I just did what you said to do. And In this blog post, I said, if you come across someone like me, here's what you do. You talk to them and listen to what's going on in their lives. You make a suggestion based on something they said to do for them. And then you execute, asking for guidance as needed. She said, you told me what to do. I just did it. Oh, gosh. And that's still one of the most magical stories ever. That is a great story. But look at you. I mean, I know we're going to talk about more here today, but one of the nicest things that you do, and I was going to ask you for for your tips on advice to people on how to handle this, but that's what you've done. You've educated people in one of the areas of life where people often are absolutely clueless how to help somebody because they're not in your shoes. They're not going through this dark tunnel that you're going through and you're telling them here's how you help what a gift to everybody and so so happy to to get it you know so happy to have someone being clear on this topic that nobody talks about Mm -hmm. it's sort of veiled in oh i don't want to make you cry but crying is just tears and if you don't find out how do you know what to do and how do you know what to say? It's like going on a date. So you're going on a date with someone and you expect them to know the restaurant you'll like, the food you'll like, the ambiance you'll like, but you're not going to tell them any of it. Mm -hmm. You're just going to be disappointed if they get it wrong. And that's how we do these conversations around grief. You should just know. How can they just know? It's unrealistic. Yeah. Do you find that, I don't know if you've had any friends in this situation, but somebody who's been through something similar, do they know? People who've been through it know. Okay. It's a, it's a common experience. So grief is a very individual journey, and it's also a very human experience. So it's something that everybody on the planet goes through at some point. And yes. all that list of the things that we grieve, this is the same process. You go through the same process for all of them, you know, and the, it's the same pathway to get through it. I want to say something about time. So time is very weird, the amount of time that you're allowed to grieve. So what I discovered was that If you've been with someone for 25 years, you get a year to grieve and then people are ready for you to be over it and moving on. 
Now, what about the other things that we grieve? So you've lost a job that you loved. A business has gone down. There's been a financial breakdown. There's been a health crisis, even aging, where people's minds and bodies are changing and they can maybe do less than they could before. These are all things we grieve. And we get varying amounts of time where we are given the grace to do that before people are ready to move on. So the experience of someone grieving is like you're in a stream and everybody else is in a faster stream and you're out of sync with the world. And then the question is, how do you get back on the back in the flow that everybody else is swimming in? How do you even do that? And so this is the thing that I was I was working on as I was moving through myself that I can share with other people because I've done it. That that's a good way to put it. That's a really good way to put it. And it's I mean, my observation was always after the funeral or the memorial, other people were ready to move on. Like it was tragic, they cried, it was it, but now let's let's get back to regular living. Whereas the person who has the loss, it can go on for a really long time. And then there's periods sometimes, which I'm sure you've experienced where it's just all of a sudden there'd be just, it's there and it's fresh in your mind and raw again. And it can be a couple of years after. And it may only last an hour. It may last a few days. It may last longer, but it's, it doesn't go away. Sometimes if it's a big hole, especially I would imagine a relationship, a relationship like yours, that was 25 years. I mean, that's, that's so big a part of you. Yeah. I mean, there are still days I'm, I'm with, I have a boyfriend who I love, um, at this point. And there are still days when the sadness rises up. Yeah. And he just knows to be really gentle with me those days. Wow. Sounds like you found a good man. I found a very good man. Yeah. But that Uh, was the journey. That was <laughs> the hardest thing. Yeah. Love was the hardest thing. It mm. it tasted like betrayal. Yeah. My head knew my husband was dead. My heart and my body did not know that. Well, let me ask you more about that, if you don't mind. Um, mm-hmm. Because I've known people who have expressed profound admiration for women or men who never moved on after they lost their spouse, that those people were somehow very holy because they never left their their deceased spouse and they just stayed loyal to that one person. And for other people, the thought is, there's other broken people out there. So why not find another one? And you guys can go through life together and try and be healed with each other. So, I mean, did you find that or did you did you have any of that experience where it was... Well, you said it felt like a betrayal, but did you find that from other people too, where there was some kind of feedback that this wasn't really acceptable for you to do this out of respect to your husband? Oh, yeah. I mean, I had people say I was going too fast and people saying I was going too slow. <laughs> I couldn't do it you right. Know, I mean, couldn't do it everybody's right. got an opinion. <laughs> yeah. And and my viewpoint at a certain point was I I would listen to the advice, but at the end of the day, if I took it, I was the one living with the consequences. Absolutely. So I needed to make sure that it fit what I wanted. Mm-hmm. 
And so I would sort of take in advice and then I would screen it through my desires for my own life. And then I would act from there. Um, And for me, it was, I was half my life with this one man. I had about close to another half a life left and I was unwilling to live without love. But I couldn't trust my own body chemistry. So I literally could not be touched without pushing away, without absolute revulsion in some moments. Hmm. Was very unsettling because you count on your body to tell you if you're attracted. Yeah. If I felt desire, grief rose up at exactly the same time. Was really, really one of the hardest things ever. And what I decided to do, because I still had really limited energy, was I decided that I was going to just start doing things with men. Just start bringing that back into my life. Intimacy was a completely impossible idea. I mean, I couldn't tolerate someone putting their arm around my waist. Mm. If I was kissed, I had a panic attack full on. Wow. And I got on this dating app, Bumble, and I began looking at men and saying yes and no to talking to them. It was terrifying. The last time I had dated was when I met my husband in 1992, and it was 2018. Times have changed. My body is not what my body was 28 years, you know. Yeah, yeah. I could not remember the name of the game of dating. And so I moved into this thing that I had no idea what I was doing. And I decided to use it to reinvent, to discover what I liked and what I didn't like. And so I wrote my profile like a marketing campaign. Because I wanted the people who weren't my people to deselect themselves. I don't like sandy beaches. So I put in my profile, prefer rocky beaches to sandy ones. What does that say? If you love Florida, not my guy. Good to know, right? Yeah. So those people I didn't want to talk to. I mean, I had no energy. By the time... And then I looked at the results. So I would get different kinds of men talking to me. And I made some doozy mistakes. But (laughs) in the end, by the time I started dating and actually went out on my first live date, not just talking to people, I never met a single man who wasn't a great man. Oh, Great wow, that's that's valuable information right there. How to deal with that? Yeah, yeah. It was really, really rewarding because I was so clear about all I wanted was for them to clearly see me and choose me as I was. Mm. So I had widow in there. If they had a problem with me being a widow, deselect yourself. Yeah. 
Huh. Yeah, you, you went about it very scientifically, and it sounds like it worked for you. That's, that's pretty brilliant of you. Yeah. It, it, it comes with not settling. I wasn't actually willing. One of the things I hear a lot from other widows is that they don't like the loss. They grieve the loss, but they like the autonomy. Mm. And there's a real unwillingness to give up the autonomy. That's an interesting transition that people go through. Yeah. You have a, a thing on your website, a, a free download for people about strategies to face breakdowns and plug the gaps and, and people can get that on your website. But how do you help other people now? I mean, other than telling people how to be a better friend, basically a better support person and, and what you need, how do you help people take back their life after their loss and... How do you, as a person who's lost a partner of 25 years, come at it for somebody who's you know, maybe lost um, a job? I mean, you've got scales in life where people naturally judge and say, well, this is really big and this isn't that big. How do you deal with that? Okay, the, so the first piece. Um, I am about to launch a, a uh, six-week course called reconnect because one of the that the uh, casualties of the pandemic has been we've become disconnected in our relationships it's especially true for people after a loss but this last year has been a year of so many losses mm -hmm. in so many different ways you know starting with death but so many other things um so i'm going to be offering this course, which will cover a lot of what we talked about here. The other thing that I'm in the middle of doing is writing a book called The Bad Widow Guide to Life After Loss, Moving Through Grief to Live in Love Again. Mm, nice. Which I'm super excited about. And that will come out in September. The second piece of your question, what about people who have experienced other losses? I had a friend who was getting divorced. She had recently gotten married and she was talking to me about how she was grieving this divorce. And she said, oh, but I shouldn't be talking to you about this because yours is so much worse. And I said, not for you. Mm. Grief is valid. And the depth of anyone's grief is valid no matter what they're grieving. And there's a way in which we don't honor that very well. That is, I think, harmful. You know, you can't actually get on with it until you allow the grief to be. Because when you stuff it down, it becomes a volcano and then it erupts later. It's not a good experience. And it, it has pretty serious consequences. And that is true for loss of a job, a business, a financial breakdown, health, illness, aging, all of them. There is an amount of time that the world says we have to grieve. The fact of the matter is we grieve until we're done. And we, if we stuff it down, it takes longer. Wow, you have a lot of compassion for people. Do you yes. feel like you were always that way or did this shape you, the experience you went through? 
Well, this certainly shaped me, but I've always had a real drive for um, deconstructing painful experiences Hmm. and finding solutions. That's interesting. All through this, as I was having this, you know, both transformational and heartbreaking experience, I just kept telling myself this pain must serve. It must serve something beyond just being awful. Mm. See a lot of perspective throughout it. I know there were times where probably perspective would not be what you would say that you had, but it sounds like you did have some perspective (laughs) about a higher value of what you were going through and how it could serve you. That's very interesting. Well, Bad Widow came about because I couldn't find any resources that were from what I called in the raw. So there were lots of resources about how to handle the finances, how to declutter the home, you know, how to make plans, how to have the paperwork all together. There was very little from when your world blows up, how do you center yourself again? Mm. You know, how do you take back your life? How do you be willing to risk getting out into life again? Yeah. There was nothing I could find on that. So you're addressing that. So I decided I was that leader. Uh, I think that's so um, inspiring. I think that's really great. There's a huge need, especially after the year that we have been through. And I know um, I have a client who was looking for a grief support group and I was trying to find one for her and I noticed the grief support group was very explicit. It could only be for the death of a person. It could not be for the death of a pet or divorce or anything else. Uh, Those things, you were not welcome to join that support group. And I thought that was very interesting. And I, I can understand from the perspective of possibly the other people who are attending that they might not want to entertain the loss of your cat with the loss of their child. But, um, but that's, that's, it's really beautiful. Your, your point is that for you, this is huge. This, this is devastating for you. And therefore, you are grieving and you're entitled to your grief. Yes. Uh, I like that. Thanks. Yeah. So um, for people you've worked with before, what are, what, like, what's one of your situations that, that you would want to share a story you'd want to share about somebody you were able to help or felt like you were most impactful with? Well, I'll do a, a um, job loss one. This was a gentleman who was um, in his late, very late 60s, almost 70. He was working for a Fortune 500 in operations for years, decades, and lost his job and had been out of work for a while. And it was in despair, honestly. And he wanted another Fortune 500 operations job. And he started trying to go about it the normal way. But he was almost 70. So he had ageism against him. He had he had been out of work for a while against him. His mood was very bad. And we reframed who he was and what he was doing. So he started learning cryptocurrency. And by the time we were done, he was asked to teach in universities. He wrote some white papers on the topic. And in the middle of the pandemic, 
he got a job in operations Gee. in a Fortune 500 banking company. There's a success story. But we had to shift him through the grief of being older and people not wanting him as much. Yeah. Through the grief of losing a job. So there were multiple things going on that we needed to move him through. And basically what we did was we created a bridge, this new stuff that he was really excited about learning and his old network of relationships with the Fortune 500 people connected them up to create him as a new offer, which they bought. Mm. So that's a success story. That is a success story. That's really nice. So what would be some tips that you would have for people? Like if you were going to summarize it, what would be some tips you would have for people who have a friend who's going through any kind of a loss? What would you tell these people? Uh, I would say, listen to them. What I, what happened, listen to them. Suggest some area of support that you can do out of what they say and then execute. I would say that grieving takes a long time and people disappear after the first year. So create some kind of a support system. Check-ins once a month. If they have a network of people, organize the network of people so that there are periodic connections. And not don't worry if the person doesn't respond. They might not be able to. But there's a real appreciation for in order to keep them connected to the fabric of their people who love them, those people will for quite some time have to keep reaching out. In the second year, everyone vanishes. In the first year, you're numb. In the second year, it becomes real that that person is gone and they're never coming back. And so it's devastating. It's newly raw. And in that moment, everyone vanishes. So I would say for someone who wants to support someone, like going through what I went through, stay the course. Okay. I like all your tips. I really do. They're really valuable. And um, one thing I wanted to point out on your website, you have a lot of your husband's art. It is stunning. It is your late husband's art. It's really, really beautiful. He really was quite talented. It's neat to see that and that you have so much of it there too. That's really nice to, I mean, do you feel like you're honoring him in that way by having him as part of this whole thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like he was a beautiful artist. Yeah. Oh, that it's it, gorgeous. You have one where it's two people sitting on the grass beside a wall and it's just so lovely. He's really, uh, really a very gifted artist. It was nice. So did you find that um, couples were a problem, maintaining friends who were couples? Was that a problem for you? Um, you were suddenly now essentially single? Not, not necessarily, because okay. my, my husband had, there are very few artists who are couples. So we didn't have very many friends who were couples on his side. Uh, okay. Uh, which is where you tend to lose people. Mm-hmm. And I did, ha- I did lose some friends who had 
some friends of his who had girlfriends and things who had become friends of mine, but I, I wasn't able to maintain some of those relationships in the way that I wanted. I mean, you lose people or the, the thread stretches. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty determined about keeping those people that I really love in my life. And so I will reach out and redevelop relationships if I realize that's what I want. Mm. That's Even good. after years. That, I think that's really good. And I, I think a lot of people right now, after what we've been through, I mean, not even the pandemics, but the politics coupled with the pandemic. I mean, there was just so much going on where the friendships were just stretched so, so thin and to the ultimate breaking point for a lot of them. But realizing now the impact of being isolated from people and losing friends, it, it's a time for reevaluation. And again, I applaud your perspective that you knew this was something that you needed to fight for. And that's something that I would imagine for your clients, you're able to help them realize the value of maintaining those relationships that were really special and healthy in their lives. Yeah, that's why I felt like it was important for the offer that I come out with now to be reconnect. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's what people are missing most. Yeah. And we don't know how to be with people. You know, the skill sets that were just natural, they're a little rusty. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And you can get used to being alone. You can really get to where that's, that's fine. You call the shots on everything and it's just you and only you all the time. And, and, but it's not a really healthy way to be. So it's, it's nice that you're able to help your clients with that and to get back in that. It sounds like your workshop is going to be very timely. Yeah. The tipping point when people come to me most often is when their longing for more gets bigger than their fear of pain. Mm, I like that. So they have to move forward. Yeah. yeah. But they have to want. Yeah, you can't do it for them. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you'd like us to know? I mean, I'm going to tell people where to find you. It'll be in the show notes, but I can tell you it's it's badwidow.com. And I have to say, you're an excellent widow. And I would think... Your your former your, your your late husband as your partner who is able to see you from a different perspective right now would just be so happy with what you've gone through and how you've come through it and you haven't just stopped it yourself but you're moving forward to try to make these experiences better for everybody. I mean, it's, you're really a good widow because and I think you know that because you're really setting the bar for how to be to take care of yourself and to enable other people to take care of themselves. That's not something everybody knows how to do. I know uh, when I went through a huge loss, I didn't know how to tell other people. And when people would text me and say, you know, how are you doing today? I would say fine. Because I didn't want to text the whole thing and I didn't want to necessarily go into it or be a burden to other people. And what you're teaching other people is really so necessary. So we'll call it, we'll still call you the bad widow <laughs> because you broke the mold is what you're doing. I get that part, but you really are making such a huge impact for a lot of people. And my hat is off to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want us to know? I guess what I would say to someone going through an experience like this or 
is trust yourself. Mm. At the end of the day, it's your life. And life is short and to be lived. So live it. Yeah. All right. That's, that's great. I want to thank you so much for your time, Allison. This has been an interview with Allison Penna, Bad Widow. Again, badwidow.com. The notes uh, will include the link to her website. And you can also find out more about her free download and about the program she's got coming up and follow along with the book progress as well when that's available. I think that would probably be a handbook that almost everybody would need to have. So thank you so much for your time, Allison. Thanks for having me.